Chapter 23 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 26, Chapter 23. I purchase a handsome carriage and proceed to Parma with the old captain and the young French woman. I pay a visit to Javotte and present her with a beautiful pair of gold bracelets. My perplexities respecting my lovely traveling companion. A monologue. Conversation with the captain. Tete-a-tete with Henriette. The conversation was animated and the young female officer was entertaining everybody, even Madame Querini, although she hardly took the trouble of concealing her spleen. It seems strange, she remarked, that you and the captain should live together without ever speaking to each other. Why, madam, we understand one another perfectly, for speech is of very little consequence in the kind of business we do together. The answer, given with graceful liveliness, made everybody laugh, except Madame Querini, Juliette, who, foolishly assuming the air of a prude, thought that its meaning was too clearly expressed. I do not know any kind of business, she said, that can be transacted without the assistance of the voice or the pen. Excuse me, madam, there are some. Playing at cards, for instance, is a business of that sort. Are you always playing? We do nothing else. We play the game of the pharaoh, and I hold the bank. Everybody, understanding the shrewdness of this evasive answer, laughed again, and Juliet herself could not help joining in the general merriment. But tell me, said Count Spada, does the bank receive much? As for the deposits, they are of so little importance that they are hardly worth mentioning. No one ventured upon translating that sentence for the benefit of the worthy captain. The conversation continued in the same amusing style, and all the guests were delighted with the graceful wit of the charming officer. Late in the evening I took leave of the general, and wished him a pleasant journey. Adieu, he said, I wish you a pleasant journey to Naples, and hope you will enjoy yourself there. Well, general, I am not going to Naples immediately. I have changed my mind, and intend to proceed to Parma, where I wish to see the Infante. I also wish to constitute myself the interpreter of these two officers who know nothing of Italian. Ha, <laughs> ha, young man, opportunity makes a thief, does it not? Well, if I were in your place, I would do the same. I also bade farewell to Madame Corini, who asked me to write her from Bologna. I gave her a promise to do so, but without meaning to fulfill it. I had felt interested in the young Frenchwoman when she was hiding under the bedclothes. She had taken my fancy the moment she had shown her features, and still more when I had seen her dressed. She completed her conquest at the dinner table by the display of a wit which I greatly admired. It is rare in Italy, and seems to belong generally to the daughters of France. I did not think it would be very difficult to win her love, and I resolved on trying. Putting my self-esteem on one side, I fancied I would suit her much better than the old Hungarian, a very pleasant man for his age, but who, after all, carried sixty years on his face, while my twenty-three were blooming on my countenance. It seemed to me that the captain himself would not raise any great objection, for he seemed one of those men who, 
treating love as a matter of pure fancy, accept all circumstances easily, and give way good-naturedly to all freaks of fortune. By becoming the travelling companion of this ill-matched couple, I should probably succeed in my aims. I never dreamed of experiencing a refusal at their hands. My company would certainly be agreeable to them, as they could not exchange a single word by themselves. With this idea, I asked the captain, as we reached our inn, whether he intended to proceed to Parma by the public coach or otherwise. "'As I have no carriage of my own,' he answered, "'we shall have to take the coach.' "'Well, I have a very comfortable carriage, and I offer you the two back seats if you have no objection to my society. "'That is a piece of good fortune. Be kind enough to propose it to Henrietta. "'Will you, madam, grant me the favor of accompanying you to Parma?' "'I should be delighted, for we could have some conversation. "'But take care, sir. Your task will not be an easy one. "'You will often find yourself obliged to translate for both of us.' "'I shall do so with great pleasure.' I am only sorry that the journey is not longer. We can arrange everything at supper-time. Allow me to leave you now, as I have some business to settle. My business was in reference to a carriage, for the one I had boasted of existed only in my imagination. I went to the most fashionable coffee-house, and, as good luck would have it, heard that there was a travelling carriage for sale, which no one would buy because it was too expensive. Two hundred sequins were asked for it although it had but two seats and a bracket-stool for a third person. It was just what I wanted. I called at the place where it would be seen. I found a very fine English carriage, which could not cost less than two hundred guineas. Its noble proprietor was then at supper, so I sent him my name, requesting him not to dispose of his carriage until the next morning, and I went back to the hotel well pleased with my discovery. At supper I arranged with the captain that we would not leave Cessna until after dinner on the following day, and the conversation was almost entirely a dialogue between Henrietta and myself. It was my first talk with a French woman. I thought this young creature more and more charming, yet I could not suppose her to be anything else but an adventuress, and I was astonished at discovering in her those noble and delicate feelings which denote a good education. However, as such an idea would not have suited the views I had about her, I rejected it whenever it presented itself to my mind. Whenever I tried to make her talk about the captain, she would change the subject of conversation, or evade my insinuations with a tact and a shrewdness which astonished and delighted me at the same time. For everything she said bore the impress of grace and wit. Yet she did not elude this question. At least tell me, madam, whether the captain is your husband or your father. Neither the one nor the other, she answered with a smile. That was enough for me, and in reality what more did I want to know? The worthy captain had fallen asleep. When he awoke I wished them both good night, and retired to my room with a heart full of love and a mind full of projects. I saw that everything had taken a good turn, and I felt certain of success, for I was young, I enjoyed excellent health, I had money and plenty of daring. I liked the affair all the better because it must come to a conclusion in a few days. Early the next morning I called upon Count Dandani, the owner of the carriage, and, as I passed a jeweler's shop, I bought a pair of golden bracelets in Venetian filigree, each five yards long and a rare fineness. I attended them as a present for Javotte. The moment Count Dandani saw me, he recognized me. He had seen me in Padua, at the house of his father, who was a professor of civil law at the time I was a student there. 
I bought his carriage on condition that he would send it to me in good repair at one o'clock in the afternoon. Having completed the purchase, I went to my friend Franzia, and my present of the bracelets made Javat perfectly happy. There was not one girl in Cessna who could boast of possessing a finer pair, and with that present my conscience fell at ease, for it paid the expense I had occasioned during my stay of ten or twelve days at her father's house four times over. But this was not the most important present I offered the family. I made the father take an oath to wait for me, and never to trust in any pretended magician for the necessary operation to obtain the treasure, even if I did not return or give any news of myself for ten years. Because, I said to him, in consequence of the agreement in which I have entered with the spirits, watching the treasure, at the first attempt made by any other person, the casket containing the treasure will sink to twice its present depth, that is to say, as far as thirty-five fathoms, and then I shall have myself ten times more difficulty in raising it to the surface. I cannot state precisely the time of my return, for it depends upon certain combinations which are not under my control, but recollect that the treasure cannot be obtained by any one but I. I accompanied my advice with threats of utter ruin to his family if he should ever break his oath. In this manner I atoned for all I had done, for, far from deceiving the worthy man, I became his benefactor by guarding against the deceit of some cheat who would have cared for his money more than for his daughter. I never saw him again, and most likely he is dead. But knowing the deep impressions I left on his mind, I am certain that his descendants are even now waiting for me, for the name of Faruzi must have remained immortal in that family. Javot accompanied me as far as the gate of the city, where I kissed her affectionately, which made me feel that the thunder and lightning had had but a momentary effect upon me. Yet I kept control over my senses, and I congratulate myself on doing so to this day. I told her, before bidding her adieu, that her virginity was no longer necessary for my magic operations. I advised her to get married as soon as possible, if I did not return within three months. She shed a few tears, but promised to follow my advice. I trust that my readers will approve of the noble manner in which I concluded my magic business. I hardly dare to boast of it, but I think I deserve some praise for my behavior. Perhaps I might have ruined poor Franzia with a light heart, had I not possessed a well-filled purse, I do not wish to inquire whether any young man, having intelligence, loving pleasure, and placed in the same position, would not have done the same. But I beg my readers to address that question to themselves. As for Capitani, to whom I sold the sheath of St. Peter's knife for rather more than it was worth, I confess that I have not yet repented on his account, for Capitani thought he had duped me in accepting it as security for the amount he gave me and the Count, his father, valued it until his death as more precious than the finest diamonds in the world. Dying with such a firm belief, he died rich, and I shall die a poor man. Let the reader judge which of the two made the best bargain. But I must return now to my future traveling companions. As soon as I had reached the inn, I prepared everything for our departure, for which I was now longing. Henriette could not open her lips without my discovering some fresh perfection, for her wit delighted me even more than her beauty. It struck me that the old captain was pleased with all the attention I showed her, and it seemed evident to me that she would not be sorry to exchange her elderly lover for me. I had all the better right to think so, insomuch as I was perfection from a physical point of view, and I appeared to be wealthy, 
although I had no servant. I told Henriette that, for the sake of having none, I spent twice as much as a servant would have cost me, that, by me being my own servant, I was certain of being served according to my taste, and I had the satisfaction of having no spy at my heels, and no privileged thief to fear. She agreed with everything I said, and it increased my love. The honest Hungarian insisted upon giving me in advance the amount to be paid for the post-horses at the different stages as far as Parma. We left Cessna after dinner, but not without a contest of politeness respecting the seats. The captain wanted me to occupy the back seat near Henrietta, but the reader will understand how much better the seat opposite to her suited me. Therefore I insisted upon taking the bracket seat, and had the double advantage of showing my politeness, and of having constantly, and without difficulty, before my eyes, the lovely woman whom I adored. My happiness would have been too great if there had been no drawback to it. But where can we find roses without thorns? When the charming Frenchwoman uttered some of those witty sayings which proceed so naturally from the lips of her countrywomen, I could not help pitying the sorry face of the poor Hungarian, and wishing to make him share my mirth, I would undertake to translate in Latin Henriette's sallies. But far from making him merry, I often saw his face bear a look of astonishment, as if what I had said seemed to him rather flat. I had to acknowledge to myself that I could not speak Latin as well as she spoke French, and this was indeed the case. The last thing which we learn in all languages is wit, and wit never shines so well as in jests. I was thirty years of age before I began to laugh in reading Terence, Plautus, and Martial. Something being the matter with the carriage, we stopped at Forley to have it repaired. After a very cheerful supper, I retired to my room to go to bed, thinking of nothing else but the charming woman by whom I was so completely captivated. Along the road, Henriette had struck me as so strange that I would not sleep in the second bed in their room. I was afraid lest she would leave her old comrade to come to my bed and sleep with me, and I did not know how far the worthy captain would have put up with such a joke. I wished, of course, to possess that lovely creature, but I wanted everything to be settled amicably, for I felt some respect for the brave officer. Henriette had nothing but the military costume in which she stood, not any women's linen, not even one chemise. For a change, she took the captain's shirt. Such a state of things was so new to me that the situation seemed to me a complete enigma. In Bologna, Excited by an excellent supper, and by the amorous passion which was every hour burning more fiercely in me, I asked her by what singular adventure she had become the friend of the honest fellow, who looked her father rather than her lover. If you wish to know, she answered with a smile, ask him to relate the whole story himself, only you must request him to not omit any of the particulars. Of course, I applied at once to the captain and having first ascertained by signs that the charming Frenchwoman had no objection, the good man spoke to me thus. A friend of mine, an officer in the army, having occasion to go to Rome, I solicited a furlough of six months and accompanied him. I seized with great delight the opportunity of visiting a city, the name of which has a powerful influence on the imagination, owing to the memories of the past attached to it. I did not entertain any doubt that the Latin language was spoken there in good society, at least as generally as in Hungary. But I was indeed greatly mistaken, for nobody can speak it, not even the priests, who only pretend to write it, and it is true that some of them do so with great purity. I was therefore rather uncomfortable during my stay in Rome, 
and with the exception of my eyes, my senses remained perfectly inactive. I spent a very tedious month in that city, the ancient queen of the world, when Cardinal Albani gave my friend dispatches for Naples. Before leaving Rome, he introduced me to his eminence, and his recommendation had so much influence that the cardinal promised to send me very soon with dispatches for the Duke of Parma, Piencenza, and Gustala, assuring me that all my traveling expenses would be defrayed. As I wished to see the harbor, called in former times Cantum Celae, and now Civitia Vecchia, I gave up the remainder of my time to that visit, and I proceeded there with a Cicerone who spoke Latin. I was loitering about the harbor when I saw, coming out of a tatan, an elderly officer, and this young woman, dressed as she is now. Her beauty struck me, but I should not have thought any more about it, if the officer had not put up at my inn, and in an apartment over which I had a complete view whenever I opened my window. In the evening I saw that couple taking supper at the same table, but I remarked that the elderly officer never addressed a word to the young one. When the supper was over, the disguised girl left the room and my companion did not lift his eyes from a letter that he was reading, as it seemed to me with the deepest attention. Soon afterwards the officer closed the windows, the light was put out, and I suppose my neighbors went to bed. The next morning, being up early as is my habit, I saw the officer go out, and the girl remained alone in the room. I sent my Kirkone, who was also my servant, to tell the girl, in the garb of an officer, that I would give her ten sequins for an hour's conversation. He fulfilled my instructions, and on his return, he informed me that her answer, given in French, had been to the effect that she would leave for Rome immediately after breakfast, and that, once in that city, I should easily find some opportunity of speaking with her. I can find out from the Vetturino, said my Cicerone, where they put up in Rome, and I promise you to inquire of him. She left Civitia Vecchia with the elderly officer, and I returned home on the following day. Two days afterwards, the cardinal gave me the dispatches, which were addressed to Monsieur Dutelat, the French minister, with a passport and the money necessary for the journey. He told me with great kindness that I need not hurry on the road. I had almost forgotten the handsome adventuress, when, two days before my departure, my Cicerone gave me the information that he had found out where she lived, and that she was with the same officer. I told him to try to see her, and to let her know that my departure was fixed for the day after the morrow. She sent me word by him that, if I would inform her of the hour of my departure, she would meet me outside the gate, and get into the coach with me to accompany me on the way. I thought the arrangement very ingenious, and during the day I sent the Cicerone to tell her the hour at which I intended to leave, and where I would wait for her outside of the Porto del Popolo. She came at the appointed time, and we have remained together ever since. As soon as she was seated near me, she made me understand by signs that she wanted to dine with me. You may imagine what difficulty we had in understanding one another, but we guessed somehow the meaning expressed by our pantomime, and I accepted the adventure with delight. We dined gaily together, speaking without understanding, but after the dessert we comprehended each other very well. I fancied that I had seen the end of it, and you might imagine how surprised I was when, Upon my offering her the ten sequins, she refused most positively to take any money, making me understand that she would rather go with me to Parma, because she had some business in that city, and did not want to return to Rome. The proposal was, after all, rather agreeable to me. I consented to her wishes. I only regretted my inability to make her understand that, if she was followed by anyone from Rome, 
and if that person wanted to take her back, I was not in a position to defend her with, against violence. I was also sorry that, with our mutual ignorance of the language spoken by each of us, we had no opportunity of conversation, for I should have been greatly pleased to hear her adventures, which I think must be interesting. You can, of course, guess that I have no idea of who she can be. I only know that she calls herself Henriette, and that she must be a Frenchwoman, that she is as gentle as a turtle dove, and that she has evidently received a good education, and that she enjoys good health. She is witty and courageous, as we have both have seen, I in Rome, and you in Cessna, at General Spada's table. If she would tell you her history, and allow you to translate it for me in Latin, she would indeed please me very much, for I am sincerely her friend, and I can assure you that it will grieve me to part from her in Parma. Please to tell her that I intend to give her the thirty sequins I received from the Bishop of Cessna, and that, if I were rich, I would give her more substantial proofs of my tender affection. Now, sir, I shall feel obliged to you if you will explain it all to her in French. I asked whether she would feel offended if I gave her an exact translation. She assured me that, on the contrary, she wished me to speak openly, and I told her literally what the captain had related to me. With a noble frankness, which a slight shade of shame rendered more interesting, Henriette confirmed the truth of her friend's narrative, but she begged me to tell him that she would not grant his wish respecting the adventures of her life. Be good enough to inform him, she added, that the same principle which forbids me to utter a falsehood does not allow me to tell the truth. As for the thirty sequins which he intends to give me, I will not accept even one of them, and he will deeply grieve me by pressing them upon me. The moment we reach Parma, I wish him to allow me to lodge wherever I may please, to make no inquiries whatever about me, and in case he should happen to meet me, to crown his great kindness to me by not appearing to ever have known me. She uttered the last words of this short speech, which she had delivered very seriously, and with a mixture of modesty and resolution. She kissed her elderly friend in a manner which indicated esteem and gratitude rather than love. The captain, who did not know why she was kissing him, was deeply grieved when I translated what Henrietta had said. He begged me to tell her that, if he was to obey her with an easy conscience, he must know whether she would have everything she required in Parma. You can assure him, she answered, that he need not entertain any anxiety about me. This conversation had made us all very sad. We remained for a long time thoughtful and silent, until, feeling the situation to be painful, I rose, wishing them good night, and I saw that Henriette's face wore a look of great excitement. As soon as I found myself alone in my room, deeply moved by conflicting feelings of love, surprise, and uncertainty, I began to give vent to my feelings as a kind of soliloquy, as I always do when I am strongly excited by anything. Thinking is not, in those cases, enough for me. I must speak out loud, and I throw so much action, so much animation into these monologues that I forget that I am alone. What I knew now of Henriette had upset me altogether. Who can she be? I said, speaking to the walls. This girl who seems to have the most elevated feelings under the veil of the most cynical libertinism. She said that in Parma she wishes to remain perfectly unknown, her own mistress, and I cannot, of course, flatter myself that she will not place me under the same restrictions as the captain, to whom she has already abandoned herself. Goodbye to my expectations, to my money, to my illusions. But who is she? What is she? She must have either a lover or a husband in Parma, 
or she must belong to a respectable family, or, perhaps, thanks to a boundless love for debauchery, and to her confidence in her own charms, she intends to set fortune, misery, and degradation at defiance, and to try to enslave some wealthy nobleman. But that would be the plan of a madwoman, or a person reduced to utter despair, and that does not seem to be the case with Henrietta. Yet she possesses nothing. True, but she refused, as if she had been provided with all she needed, the kind assistance of a man who has the right to offer it, and with whom, in sooth, she can accept without blushing, since she has not been ashamed to grant him favors, with which love had nothing to do. Does she think that it is less shameful for a woman to abandon herself to the desires of a man unknown and unloved, than to receive a present from an esteemed friend, and particularly at the eve of finding herself in the street, entirely destitute in the middle of a foreign city, amongst people whose language she cannot even speak? Perhaps she thinks that such conduct will justify the faux pas of which she had been guilty with the captain, and give him to understand that she had abandoned herself to him only for the sake of escaping from the officer with whom she was in Rome. But she ought to be quite certain that the captain does not entertain any other idea. He shows himself so reasonable that it is impossible to suppose that he ever admitted the possibility of having inspired her with a violent passion, because she might have seen him once through a window in Civitia Vecchia. She might possibly be right, and feel herself justified in her conduct towards the captain. But it is not the same with me, for with her intelligence she must be aware that I would not have travelled with them if she had been indifferent to me. She must know that there is but one way that she could obtain my pardon. She may be endowed with many virtues, but she has not the only one which could prevent me from wishing the reward which every man expects to receive at the hands of a woman he loves. If she wants to assume the prudish manners towards me and make a dupe of me, I am bound in honor to show her how much she is mistaken. After this monologue, which made me still more angry, I made up my mind to have an explanation in the morning before our departure. I shall ask her, I said to myself, to grant me the same favors which she had so easily granted to her old captain, and if I meet with a refusal, the best revenge will be to show her a cold and profound contempt until our arrival in Parma. I felt sure that she could not refuse me some marks of real or pretended affection, unless she wished to make a show of a modesty which certainly did not belong to her, and knowing that her modesty would only be all pretense, I was determined not to be a mere toy in her hands. As for the captain, I felt certain, from what he had told me, that he would not be angry with me if I risked a declaration, for, as a sensible man, he can only assume a neutral position. Satisfied with my wise reasoning, and with my mind fully made up, I fell asleep. My thoughts were too completely absorbed in Henriette for her not to haunt my dreams. But the dream which I had throughout the night was so much like reality that, on waking, I looked for her in my bed and my imagination was so deeply struck with the delights of that night that, if my door had not been fastened with a bolt, I should have believed that she had left me during my sleep to resume her place near the worthy Hungarian. When I was awake, I found that the happy dream of the night which had turned my love for that lovely creature into a perfect amorous frenzy, and it could not be otherwise. Let the reader imagine a poor devil going to bed, broken down with fatigue and starvation, he succumbs to sleep, that most imperative of all human wants. But in his dream he finds himself before a table covered with every delicacy. What will then happen? 
why, a very natural result, his appetite, much more lively than on the previous day, does not give him a minute's rest. He must satisfy it or die of sheer hunger. I dressed myself, resolved on making sure of the possession of the woman who had inflamed all my senses, even before resuming our journey. If I do not succeed, I said to myself, I will not go one step further. But in order not to offend against propriety, and not to observe the reproaches of an honest man, I felt that it was my duty to have an explanation with the captain in the first place. I fancy that I hear one of those sensible, calm, passionless readers, who have the advantage of what is called a youth without storms, or one of those whom old age has forced to become virtuous, exclaim, Can anyone attach so much importance to such nonsense? Age has calmed my passions down by rendering them powerless, but my heart has not grown old, and my memory has kept all the freshness of youth, and, far from considering that sort of thing a mere trifle, my only sorrow, dear readers, arises from the fact that I have not the power to practice, to the day of my death, that which has been the principal affair of my life. When I was ready, I repaired to the chamber occupied by my two traveling companions, and, after paying each of them the usual morning compliments, I told the officer that I was deeply in love with Henriette, and I asked him whether he would object to my trying to obtain her as my mistress. The reason for which she begs you, I added, to leave her in Parma and not to take any further notice of her, must be that she hopes to meet some lover of hers there. Let me have half an hour's conversation with her, and I flatter myself that I can persuade her to sacrifice that lover for me, and if she refuses me, I remain here. You will go with her to Parma, where you will leave my carriage at the post, only sending me a receipt, so I can claim it whenever I please. As soon as breakfast is over, said the excellent man, I shall go and visit the Institute, and leave you alone with Henrietta. I hope you may succeed, for I should be delighted to see her under your protection, when I part with her. Should she persist in her first resolution, I could easily obtain a veterino here, and you could keep your carriage. I thank you for your proposal, and it will grieve me to leave you. Highly pleased at having accomplished half of my task, and at seeing myself near the denouement, I asked the lovely Frenchwoman whether she would like to see the sights of Bologna. I should like it very much, she said, if I had some other clothes, but with such a costume as this I do not dare show myself about the city. Then you do not want to go out? No. Can I keep you company? That would be delightful. The captain went out immediately after breakfast. The moment he had gone, I told Henriette that her friend had left us alone purposefully, so as to give me the opportunity of a private interview with her. Tell me now whether you intended the order which you gave him yesterday to forget you, never to inquire after you, and not even to know you if he happened to meet you from the time of our arrival in Parma, for me as well as for him. It is not an order that I gave him. I have no right to do so, and I could not so far forget myself. It is only a prayer I address to him, a service which circumstances have compelled me to claim at his hands, and he has no right to refuse me. I have never entertained any doubt of his granting my command. As far as you are concerned, it is certain that I should have addressed the same prayer to you if I had thought that you had any views about me. You have given me some marks of your friendship, but you must understand that if, under the circumstances, I am likely to be injured by the kind of attentions of the captain, yours would injure me much more. If you have any friendship for me, you should have felt all of that. 
as you know, I entertain great friendship for you. You cannot possibly suppose that I would leave you alone, without money, without resources, in the middle of a city where you cannot even make yourself understood. Do you think that a man who feels for you the most tender affection can abandon you when he has been fortunate enough to make your acquaintance, when he is aware of the sad position in which you are placed? If you think such a thing possible, you must have a very false idea of friendship, and should such a man grant your request, he would only prove that he is not your friend. I am certain that the captain is my friend, yet you have heard him, he will obey me and forget me. I do not know what sort of affection that honest man feels for you, or how far he can rely upon the control he may have over himself, but I know that if he can grant you what you have asked from him, his friendship must be of a nature very different from mine, for I am bound to tell you that it is not only impossible for me to afford you willingly the strange gratification of abandoning you in your position, but even that, if I go to Parma, you cannot possibly carry out your wishes because I love you so passionately that you must promise to be mine, or I must remain here. In that case, you must go to Parma alone with the captain, for I feel that, if I accompanied you any further, I should soon be the most wretched of men. I could not bear to see you with another lover, with a husband, not even in the midst of your family. In fact, I would fain see you and live with you forever. Let me tell you, lovely Henrietta, that if it is possible for a Frenchwoman to forget, an Italian cannot do it, at least if I judge from my own feelings. I have made up my mind. You must be good enough to decide now, and to tell me whether I am to accompany you or to remain here. Answer, yes or no. If I remain here, it is all over. I shall leave for Naples tomorrow, and I know that I shall be cured in time of the mad passion I feel for you. But if you tell me that I can accompany you to Parma, you must promise me that your heart will forever belong to me alone. I must be the only one to possess you, but I am ready to accept as a condition, if you like, that you shall not crown my happiness until you have judged me worthy of it by my intentions and by my loving care. Now, be kind enough to decide before the return of the too happy captain. He knows all, for I have told him how I feel. And what did he answer? That he would be happy to see you under my protection, but what is the meaning of that smile playing on your lips? Pray, allow me to laugh, for I have never in my life realized the idea of a furious declaration of love. Do you understand what it is to say to a woman in a declaration which ought to be passionate, but at the same time tender and gentle, the following terrible words? Madam, make your choice, either one or the other, and decide instanter. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, I understand perfectly. It is neither gentle, nor gallant, nor pathetic, but it is passionate. Remember that this is a serious matter, and that I have never yet found myself so much pressed by time. Can you, on your side, realize the painful position of a man who, being deeply in love, finds himself compelled to take a decision which may perhaps decide issues of life and death? Be good enough to remark that, in spite of the passion raging in me, I do not fail in the respect I owe you, that the resolution I intend to take, if you should persist in your original decision, is not a threat but a worthy effort of a hero, which ought to call for your esteem. I beg of you to consider that we cannot afford to lose time. The word, choose, must not sound harshly in your ears, since it leaves my fate as well as yours entirely in your hands. To feel certain of my love, do you want to see me kneeling before you like a simpleton, crying and entreating you to take pity on me? No, madam, that would certainly displease you, and it would not help me. 
I am conscious of being worthy of your love. I therefore ask for that feeling, and not for pity. Leave me if I displease you, but let me go away. For if you are humane enough to wish that I should forget you, allow me to go far away from you so as to make my sorrow less immense. Should I follow you to Parma, I would not answer for myself, for I might give way to my despair. Consider everything well, I beseech you. You would indeed be guilty of great cruelty were you to answer now, Come to Parma, although I must beg you not to see me in that city. Confess that you cannot, in all fairness, give me such an answer. Am I not right? Certainly, if you truly love me. Good God, if I love you! Oh, yes! Believe me, my love is immense, sincere. Now, decide my fate. What? Always the same song? Yes. But are you aware that you look very angry? No, for it is not so. I am only in a state of uncontrollable excitement. In one of the decisive hours of my life, I pray to the most fearful anxiety. I ought to curse my whimsical destiny and the Sibri of Cessna. May God curse them too, for without them I should never have known you. Are you then so very sorry to have made my acquaintance? Have I not some reason to be so? No, for I have not given you my decision yet. Now I breathe more freely, for I am sure you will tell me to accompany you to Parma. Yes, come to Parma. End of chapter 23 And End of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1 The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova